God, we thank you so much for bringing Stephanie and her husband Luke to the area. We thank you for the ministry of their church at Grace Bible. We pray for Luke as he preaches your word this morning, that it would have a powerful impact on the people listening. We pray for their family and their children, that you would cause them to grow up to serve you uh, as, it hears that, as we hear that they already are, that you would give their hearts a burden for people around them who need to know Jesus. Uh, we thank you for this role as the assistant uh, director for the greater Patterson area. We pray that you would give Stephanie success. We pray for evangelism, for discipleship, uh, for these unchurched children and their families, that you would uh, bring the gospel into their lives, save them, and restore and develop their lives. We pray that you would start new churches as a result of this and that people can find spiritual growth and care and ministry that they need. We thank you so much for the ministry that you do give us, and we thank you for your word uh, that blesses us as your church. And as it says in the, in the book of James, receive with, weakness, with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And we pray this morning that you would cause the growth that we need in our lives and that you would grant us the meekness that we need to be able to find that growth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke this morning. And so you can turn there, or you can follow along as it's printed in your worship folder for you this morning. But one of the themes that's going to be coming up, as you'll see in, in Luke chapter 14 that we're starting today, is that there are great rewards that await believers in Jesus Christ who love him, and serve him with their lives. So for example, we read in the book of Romans, beginning in chapter 2, verse 6, that God will render to each man according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Now, rewards for perseverance in the faith, rewards for doing good uh, as Christians is not a topic that is always common in evangelical churches. And perhaps it's sometimes avoided in discussion because of some confusion. We don't see it as a vital personal motivation as much as we should, as much as we actually will see it in Scripture as we read it. But sometimes we mistakenly think that to talk about rewards for following Jesus and being a faithful disciple, somehow that's in opposition maybe to salvation by faith alone. And we're not quite certain how they fit together. Or sometimes we mistakenly assume that our sense of equity, our sense of what's fair um, is right. And that that's somehow what God goes by. And it gets confusing. Sometimes also we mistakenly reason that rewards would rob Jesus somehow of his glory. So I'll pray, we pray this morning that God would grant us insight from his word and actually align our thinking with scripture and with truth. So in Luke chapter 14, you can turn in your Bibles to there if you're not there already, starting in verse 1, we're going to be talking about and listening to Jesus teaching on spirituality and ethics in the kingdom of God. And we'll read the passage as we go. It's a fairly lengthy, actually. But Luke wants us to know that Jesus' teaching has impact on our lives now as well as in the future. So we're going to see and learn and absorb this truth today. 
And that is, is that our spiritual status before God is suggested by our ethical behavior among people. They're connected. Our ethical behavior among people is a sign of what is our true spiritual status before God. So we're going to look at three scenes unfold in, in, in a, this Sabbath fellowship that Jesus is having and partaking in at a Pharisee's home. And it's going to reveal kingdom demands among kingdom members. And it's even going to reveal who are real members and who are not. And so in verses 1 to 6, we learn that we as members of Jesus' kingdom are always obligated to mercy. In verses 7 to 11, that we're always obligated to humility. And in verses 12 to 14, that we are always obligated to generosity. Mercy, humility, and generosity. Now this passage that we're looking at this morning in Luke is unique to the gospel of Luke. In other words, it it only appears here. It's not in the other gospels, these events. And a key element to know before we start is that this is the fourth Sabbath controversy in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 6 has two of them. Luke chapter 13 has one of them. And you know, with so many ongoing controversies, it's like, well, didn't Jesus just do this on the Sabbath? Didn't he just teach them this? Well, yeah. I mean, we would think that the religious leaders by now would have learned. But apparently, many of them have learned nothing. So hopefully our learning as we're going through Luke is increasing. Now, obviously, Sabbath observance was a major issue between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day, and Jesus had been constantly pointing out that they're really misunderstanding the law, and they're really missing out on what true spirituality is, both from, as is talked about in the Old Covenant and in the New. And he implies that had they really been pursuing true spirituality, well, then it would be so obvious that he's the Messiah, and there wouldn't be any problem in recognizing him for who he is. So I hope that we're encouraged this morning and we learn that our true spiritual status before God is really suggested by our ethical behaviors toward people. So the first scene teaches us that we're obligated to mercy. And in this scene, there's this gambit that uh, is thrown out in verses 1 through 4. And then the healing takes place in verses 4 through 6. So one Sabbath begins when he, this is Jesus, one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, They were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So, stop there for a moment. So Jesus goes to this home of Pharisee after a synagogue service for a midday meal. Very similar to what many of us might do in a a traditional Sunday dinner after church. It would have been largely prepared the day before, of course, to keep the priority of worshiping and resting on the Sabbath. And this Pharisee that he's at, this particular house, he's a leader, we notice. And perhaps that means he's the leader of that local synagogue, or maybe he was a member, actually, of the Sanhedrin. We don't know for sure. But the religious leaders, you notice how it's described by Luke? They were watching him closely in your English translation. There are other more pointed translations that get to the truth of the matter a little bit better. One translation is, they were lurkingly watching him. Ooh, that's a good one. That's what they were doing. Another translation is, they were like watchdogs of the faith. Perhaps you've run into people like that. You see, they wanted to see if Jesus, is he going to do it again? 
Is he going to break the Sabbath as he did so often? And then notice how Luke tells the story. So we've got that going on. These, these religious hypocritical leaders lurkingly watching Jesus to catch him on something. And then Luke says, behold, there's this man right there. Where did he show up? Where did he come from? Was he invited to dinner? He's there. This man with dropsy. That's not a term we use these days, but it refers to a medical condition with fluid accumulation in the tissues and the limbs, and so it's a very painful condition. And everyone would see because he would be all puffed up in his arms and his legs. And sometimes this condition was viewed as one of great judgment from God because he had to endure such pain. But we wonder, did this man just show up along with the other people? I mean, it wouldn't be uncommon you know, you might have a guest list at your party, but oftentimes in this culture, other people just happen to show up at your party. Did he show up with the intention to see Jesus? Because, you know, Jesus has been teaching for a couple of years and his reputation is growing. He's pretty popular and maybe he heard he was in town. Or we wonder, as Luke tells the story especially, did he appear as part of a scheme of testing instigated by the religious leaders? Because we know who these people are. We've watched them all through Luke so far. And so... As a reader of Luke, we're a little bit suspicious of these guys. We've seen what they've done. In fact, maybe even the man is unaware of the plan. You know how it might have gone down in that case. It's like, hey, would you like to come and see Jesus? Well, Jesus answers, it says literally, and he speaks to the scribes and Pharisees. I don't see him asking a question in the text. But it's implying that Jesus knows what they're really up to. And he responds to their scheme and he challenges them with, their subject, with the subject of healing on the Sabbath, just like he did back in Luke chapter 6, verse 9, where it says, Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? Ah, it says, they remained silent. They don't give an answer, which is really weird because they're experts. And experts always have a lot to say. Usually too much. So they have an answer. We know what their answer is, but they're refusing to give their answer. It's very detailed. It's very thoughtful, but they're wrong. In summary, their answer was that healing's fine on any day, but just, you know, on the Sabbath, it really would have to be a life-threatening thing. Otherwise, I mean, my goodness, there are six days you could do the healing thing. So they don't want to answer the question because then Jesus might not do anything, you see. And it shows us further that they've really learned nothing over the last two years. They're just hard-hearted. They're not open any longer to learn from Jesus. They're not open any longer to listen to him. Well, the silence should mean that they can't complain because they didn't give an answer. They have nothing to complain about when Jesus does whatever he's going to do. And the silence also works in our passage to emphasize the authority of Jesus although surely it's very unintentional on the part of these men. Well, then the healing comes, and it says, Then he took him, the man, and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. So he physically takes a hold of the man, and he heals him and just sends him on his way. And this time we observe a healing miracle that's so simple, so powerful, and it's just done. Jesus just does it. This Jesus is the same Jesus that we've been seeing over and over in Luke's gospel account, healing people like this. 
And Jesus then challenges the religious leaders further with an argument he's used many, many times before. And he gives an answer that addresses their serious inconsistencies in their Sabbath practices. I mean, they allow mercy to animals and to people in great need. And Jesus' argument is simple. So to not heal on the Sabbath is a great sin of omission. You're missing out on something. They're unable to make an adequate reply to the argument or to his active healing, and their silence, again, just speaks volumes, speaks loudly to their own condemnation. This is a rebuke. This is a call to repentance. This is a revelation of his messiahship. You see, Luke reminds us Christians that we're always obligated to mercy in this passage. And if we've been paying attention and learned anything from these four Sabbath controversies so far in the Gospel of Luke, it's that we're obligated to show mercy just like Jesus because we claim to be his followers. So let's review briefly these Sabbath controversy lessons that we've learned from Luke. If you go back and you look in Luke chapter 6, in the first controversy, Jesus shows very clearly that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he determines what the rules are. No one else because he's the Lord. And he brings the right interpretation that's what we learn. And he keeps it properly. And from the second controversy, also in chapter 6, we also learn that as Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, he restores this Sabbath that the religious leaders have really destroyed for the people and destroyed in the eyes of God. And he implies in this second controversy that there are a lot more changes coming, and he's going to bring those changes. In chapter 13, the third controversy, Jesus points out that there is no more perfect day to perform a healing than on the Sabbath. In reality, he's saying, well, what better way to celebrate the Sabbath than to heal somebody? So as a congregation, we should be encouraged because we do show mercy so often to other people. And this kind of ethical behavior toward other people in the name of Jesus, that's a sign of our spiritual status, our true spiritual status before God. You see, mercy gains status in the eyes of God. Well, they've been lurkingly watching Jesus. Well, now Jesus is going to be watching them. And as the story continues, Jesus addresses now the guests that are there, and then eventually he'll address the host himself. And he's going to speak about Really important things like seating charts and guest lists. That's what Jesus is going to talk about. Seating charts and guest lists. And so we then notice here in verse 7 that Jesus is the one watching. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So the story's not over yet. And he observes the guests at this party playing the status game, selecting the best seats for themselves. I mean, it was a bigger deal in that time and in that culture, but we know the same game. You know, when you show up at a party, where are you going to sit? Yeah, maybe you've played the status game too. You know, where are you going to sit? And the table here is going to be in a large U shape, and so the host is going to sit at the center of that, and the seats of honor are the ones that are closest to the host. That's how it works. And so then Jesus actually tells a parable and the parable is about a wedding banquet, an even more important banquet, and he picks this image on purpose, and I'll point that out to you in a moment, 
because he's setting them up for an even larger spiritual lesson that's going to come in verse 11. And so we read then, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So I mentioned that Jesus picks this wedding banquet on purpose because it's an allusion again to the Messianic banquet from Isaiah 25 that we actually looked at last week in chapter 13, verses 22 and 30. And it's come up a few times in Luke. You probably remember me mentioning this a few times. It's a favorite reference from the Gospel of Luke because it's talking about that time at the end when God welcomes his people and this image of a wedding banquet is the messianic banquet we're looking forward to. So there's really a couple different levels at which Jesus is speaking here. In one sense, yeah, he's teaching about social etiquette and being wise. But if you think that that's all this is about, you're really missing the point because verse 11 makes it pretty clear that he's talking about something much bigger than that. Jesus is teaching about the wedding banquet of God and using wisdom regarding that. And so he takes this social etiquette illustration and transforms it into a commentary on their behavior before God because our behavior with people is a commentary, whether we like it or not, on what our status is before God. So one shouldn't take the highest place of honor, an honor above what is due to who you are and what your status truly is. And some people don't have enough self-reflection to know that, but it would be wise to think about that before you sit down. Why? Because often the one with the greatest honor, when do they show up? They're always late. Right? So the guest with the highest honor is most likely going to be coming later. And then you're going to be disgraced. You're going to be publicly humiliated because you're sitting up there near the front of the table or at the head table thinking somehow you fit there. And then verse 9, as you read verse 9, it's just like, and then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place, the walk down to the bottom. How humiliating. Everyone is already there, and they're watching you walk to last place. It's the only place left open at the table by this point. As it says in verse 30 from chapter 13, Behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. Instead, it would be best to put yourself in a position that's clearly underneath your status, even the last place. Now, of course, it's implied that you're not supposed to be doing this in some kind of a prideful strategy. It's like, you know, I'm going to sit way down here because then when this, uh, the host comes, then I get to make this great walk up front. Yeah, I mean, then you know we don't, you don't have humility, right? The idea is a move of true humility, that you put yourself in the right spot. And then there's going to be great honor when the host notices and publicly recognizes you and you get to move up higher. It's pretty obvious that Jesus is basing this parable on a particular proverb, actually, in Proverbs 25, verse 6 and following. You can write that one down, Proverbs 25, 6. Do not claim honor in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of great men. For it is better that it be said of you, come up here, than that you should be put lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. Well, all of this is great wisdom, worth implementing in our lives. It's much better 
isn't it? To be recognized by others rather than trying to tell other people who you are. And then verse 11 turns the parable into the lesson beyond ethics and wisdom. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is not just talking about going to dinner parties. He's talking about true spirituality and application in the kingdom. Because that proverb is about the ultimate king who controls all status and confers honor on his servants, which are you and me. And God will on that day, that ultimate wedding banquet that we will attend together, he will issue his verdict and there will be rearrangements of table seating. So Luke reminds us as Christians in this passage that we're always obligated to humility. I mean, in one sense, it's just wise to be humble. And humility has its rewards even now. And you've probably seen that and you've probably personally experienced it. That when you've acted in humility, God in his time and in his way has conferred honor upon you. But we can also be encouraged by the fact that our true status in the kingdom is going to be matched on that final day by the appropriate honor from God. We will be honored on that day. There is such a thing as status in the kingdom, and it's based upon spirituality. And one of the key marks of that is humility. I mean, some applications just sort of stand out here, obviously. Christians shouldn't seek honor amongst themselves or jockey for positions amongst themselves or do that in the world. I mean, that's what the world does, so why would you want to bring that ugliness into the church? And think about it. You know, anyway, there are a lot of Christians that probably deserve a lot more honor than you. I mean, there are a lot of Christians that deserve a lot more honor than me. That's true. We should always think that way and give greater respect, that's what the Scriptures say, to other people than ourselves. And as a congregation, we should be really encouraged because we do often, so often, take positions of humility in the world, and that's wonderful because that ethical behavior shows what our true spiritual status is for, before God and really what's coming to us in the future, a place of honor. And it suggests something about who we are as people and who we are as Christians. You see, in the second section here, humility gains status. You want to gain status in the kingdom of God, in the sight of God, then display mercy in your life toward other people and display humility. The third scene then teaches that we're obligated to generosity. So Jesus had some words to the group in that section. Now he has some words for the host in verses 12 to 14. And it begins, And he said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. See, the story's not over yet. Remember, Jesus is the one watching now. And he makes comments to the host. And again, social etiquette here is used to teach kingdom ethics that have implications in our current life and in the life to come. So the wedding banquet idea that we've sort of been on gets expanded now to any kind of a meal fellowship, a luncheon you're going to, a dinner, banquet, and Jesus instructs the host here not to invite friends, family, or rich neighbors because they can repay you. And this will be the completion of your reward for that level of generosity. Jesus instructs the host rather to a reversal, to shock the culture, to invite the poor. 
defined as the crippled, the lame, and the blind. It's important to understand that Jesus is speaking idiomatically here, just like we do so often. He's not speaking in exclusive terms in the sense that, oh, you can no longer have dinner with your friends. You can no longer have family parties. You can no longer have meetings with people that might benefit you down the road. He's not saying that. He's speaking in what's called habituated terms. That is, he's suggesting a change of cultural practice. In other words, you might translate the idiom this way, not so much X, but Y. In other words, don't so much invite your friends, etc., but invite the poor. Now, of course, people are going to have parties for their family and friends and significant people in their life. That's life. But Jesus is advocating the acquisition of a new style of fellowship, a reversal for the sake of the kingdom, an expression of being a member of the kingdom. What about adding on to those parties? You can invite your family. You can invite rich friends. And then you can invite people that aren't particularly liked. Well, they can be at the party too. Or a complete change where you start having parties for these types of people. I mean, what should come to mind immediately is that there are so many prophecies in the book of Isaiah about the ministry of the Messiah so purposeful to people in these categories. And the words are interpreted as referencing both his miracles, Jesus' miracles, and illustrations of spirituality in the New Testament. So I'm going to quote a few verses to you. So we know them because we've seen some of them already in Luke from Isaiah 35, Isaiah 29, and Isaiah 61. You can go find them on your own, 35, 29, and 61. But they speak both to physical realities and what Jesus would do when he would actually heal people and to spiritual realities when these are perfect descriptions of who we are in our spirit. And Jesus brings us salvation. So Isaiah 35, as we read this morning, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ear of the deaf will be unstopped and the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy for waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Isaiah 29, 18. And on that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also shall increase their gladness in the Lord and the needy of mankind shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 61.1, Jesus quoted this about himself. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And so the point for us as followers of the Messiah should be obvious. We should do the same thing he did, right? Minister to people like this who are in great need. You see, only a true love of God through Jesus for other people is going to lead us to invite needy people into personal fellowship. That's what it's about. It's not about writing a check. Writing checks are great. It's about inviting needy people into personal fellowship. I mean, otherwise, if you weren't a follower of Jesus, why in the world would you do something like that? But if you are a follower of Jesus, that's an exciting opportunity.
before us. Well, then Jesus promises there's a great reward of verse 14, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You see, ancient culture in this region used reciprocity as a deciding factor on who you invite to meals. Reciprocal, to reciprocate, right? Reciprocity is a principle of friendship. How do you know who's a good friend? It's the person who pays you back, right? I mean, it works. It works in a lot of cultures still today, of course. But you see, needy people are not likely to be able to repay something because the gift you might be giving in a, in a certain type of a, of a fellowship or an invitation or a gift or something that you might be giving, they can't repay it. And if they can't repay it, then they're, they're really not a good candidate for a friendship. So we, we, we've seen and heard of it probably in other parts of the world where it's more common. If, if, if you've had the opportunity perhaps to travel to some of these places in the world, you've, you've probably seen it and experienced it firsthand for yourself. It's quite interesting and sort of takes you off guard as, as, a, as an American because we don't, we don't tend to work this way. But we still have it. We still have some of that reciprocity here. And we have our own concerns that keep us from fellowshipping with people that are less, uh, are less advantaged than us. But it's supposed to be different in the church because, again, we're talking about kingdom ethics. We, we don't live according to worldly ethics. Let the world keep their ethics because they're not that great. We're called to the ethics of the kingdom and true spirituality as Jesus defines it, as Scripture defines it. So this passage you know well from James chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, because it really was a problem in the early church, and it's still a problem today. My brothers, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or you sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brothers. God Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? And the story continues. So you can go read it on, read on, on your own. That's in James chapter 2. So Jesus teaches us that we should consider a blessing to not be repaid. You've probably experienced that when you've done this before, right? Where you've, you've extended generosity to someone, you just know there's no way this person is really going to be able to, you know, express the type of thanks that they should in this particular situation as is expected in our world that we live in. But then you find yourself blessed beyond belief that you got to do that for somebody. And God has enriched your life and your faith in ways you couldn't have imagined before. And then you get hooked on it. And you've got to keep blessing other people with generosity because this just, it just fills you with this, this rush, you will, of, of pleasure in serving other people and seeing God bless other people. And then he blesses you. You know, Jesus' teaching also can be, is considering future blessing from God. And that's more important than temporal blessings. You see, because at the resurrection of the righteous, your translation may say, or the resurrection of the just, same thing, we're going to be repaid by God himself. And so Luke, through Jesus here, is reminding us as Christians that we're always obligated to generosity. And the generosity as defined by Jesus, not as defined by the culture we live in. 
But Jesus is very countercultural in this passage. And as is the focus here, you know, oftentimes the greatest generosity we can give people are relationships, not resources. And I know I mentioned that before. But if you haven't yet realized that or found that be, to be true, I mean, if you have, you know what I'm talking about. But if you haven't yet realized that, try it. You're going to be in for a wonderful surprise because what people want more than anything is other people. Just spend time with people. That's what they want. Over a meal, as our passage indicates. What a great way to spend time with people. So be generous in hospitality, even simply for the sake of kindness toward others. Be open to all people, especially the needy people that God puts into your world. The people that you may not normally pay attention to. Ask God to open your eyes and strengthen your heart so that you have the courage to act on what you see. Because what can so often happen to us because we're weak people is that we end up seeing people and we don't we know we should reach out to them, but we don't reach out to them. And so we can pray for the courage to do so. Doing good deeds just for return in this life, not enough. We want to do it for return in the life to come. That's a legitimate motivation by Jesus himself given to us to take up. And as a congregation, we should be encouraged because you are generous people. We are generous people with our lives and our resources and our relationships. And this impacts and shows the spiritual status that we have before God. Generosity also gains status in the kingdom, just like mercy and humility. So I really hope that you were encouraged by this passage as much as you were challenged by it. I mean, isn't that how the Bible works? Both things happen to us at the same time. So be encouraged that you're members of the kingdom and, and your life shows it, and, and be encouraged even more so for Jesus' sake to continue. So there are three main lessons from Luke this morning, a very simple episode. First of all, mercy has no blackout dates. Right? That's what we learned from the first episode. Mercy has no blackout dates. We should always be ready to give to people and meet their needs. Secondly, care about how other people look at you and whether you're being humble. Don't be prideful in asserting yourself and who you think you are. It doesn't work as good as, as we often think it does anyway. And third, be generous in relating to needy people. Consider the blessing and the gospel opportunity that you're going to have to make new friends. Our true spiritual status before God is suggested by our ethical behavior among people. So as we close, I want to remind us of the gospel again. Our salvation, of course, comes to us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But the gospel, this gospel, also produces good works in us, always. They're tied together in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as the result of works, that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We don't work for our salvation, but we work out our salvation. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Philippians 2, verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes here, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, 
work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Well, we return then to the teaching of eternal rewards here. It's meant to be a strong motivation for us to excel in good works. I mean, today we were told about, there's a messianic banquet coming. And as a believer in Jesus, you're going to be there. There's also the resurrection of the righteous coming. Oh, you're not being resurrected because you're righteous. You're being resurrected because Jesus has given you his righteousness. And if that's you, that's coming. And there's going to be rewards given. Maybe we should ask the Lord to increase this motivation within us and make us more aligned with Scripture. A couple passages, for example. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And in 1 Corinthians 3.12 Now if any man builds on the foundation, speaking of Jesus Christ, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it's going to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And if any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he'll receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. So from our opening this morning, rewards are not in opposition to salvation by faith, but rather they're precisely what faith produces when we do good works. It leads to that. Rewards then are really not opposed to fairness because you see, in the final day, and you can read more about it in 1 Corinthians 15, that whole chapter, by the way, each person is going to receive exactly the reward that they're due. And they're going to be fully happy. There's not going to be any sadness and glory. And each person who's a believer in Christ and receives a reward and is fully happy is going to look around at all the other believers and see how happy they are, and it's going to increase their own happiness. There's no end. And rewards, then, you see, don't really rob Jesus of any glory because he's the one giving them out. They're an expression of his glory. They come from him. And praise is given back to him. So then, for the reward promise, let us excel in the spirituality and in the ethics of the kingdom of God. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we thank you for your holy scriptures that teach us the truth about who you are, our salvation, who our Lord Jesus is, and how things work, and how we can best please you and find the greatest blessing in our lives and bless others. We do pray that as we've been encouraged and challenged this morning, that you would do exactly what each of us needs in our own souls. Some of us need such strong encouragement. Others of us need such radical challenge. But you, Holy Spirit, know exactly what we need, and we pray that you would do that in us this morning. We thank you that we know the gospel so clearly from the gospel of Luke this morning, that faith is in you, Lord Jesus, and in your work on that cross, and that story is coming up in great glory soon, and we look forward to reading about it in this gospel account. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're going to be giving out honor on that final day. And we ask that for ourselves that you would increase our expressions of mercy, our living our lives in humility, 
and giving out from ourselves and generosity to others so that that will be an even more glorious day for us than we currently anticipate. And we pray all these things ultimately, Lord Jesus, for your sake, for your glory in your church and in our lives. Amen.